Is it fair to call the Chronicles of Narnia escapism? Because we quickly call fantasy, oh, it's an escape. Why should a man be scorned, Tolkien says, if finding himself in prison, he tries to get out and go home? Talking Beasts from NarniaWeb.com, where we explore the world of C.S. Lewis and keep a watchful eye on the latest Narnia movie news. This is Talking Beasts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Talking Beasts. This is your host, Rillian. Joining us today is Dr. Michael Ward. Dr. Ward is an associate member of the theology faculty at the University of Oxford. In addition to being a tutor and lecturer for Oxford, he has done the same at programs at Stanford University, Wheaton College, and others. He has lived at the Kilns, C.S. Lewis's home, as the resident warden and curator. He has a PhD in divinity from the University of St. Andrews. And Dr. Ward, like us, is a huge Narnia and C.S. Lewis fan. In 2008, he authored Planet Narnia, and he is perhaps the only C.S. Lewis scholar to have a cameo in a James Bond movie. (laughs) With that, Dr. Ward, welcome to Talking Beasts. Thank you, Isaac. Oh, Rillian, sorry, I should say. That's fine. (laughs) Uh, I've just blown your cover, oh dear. Oh, that's all right. (laughs) Uh, Hello, yes, thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be a Talking Beast. This is technically the second time you've been on because two years ago, almost to the day, uh, my family met you at the Head of the River Pub in Oxford, and you did a short little stint uh, for the podcast, but I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a long time. Uh, and it just, uh, it just hasn't happened for, uh, whatever reason. And, um, and then I was, uh, thinking, uh, really just with all the lockdowns and stuff, I thought, I, I just want to reconnect with, uh, reconnect with Spud. Uh, <laughs> now you've blown my cover. Oh, yeah, I've blown your cover. Sorry. <laughs> so, uh, and here's part of why I wanted to connect with you. It's been such a strange year um, with the global pandemic. There's, uh, there's all these there's other things that have already been going on. There's t- some tensions in the U.S. There's, uh, there, Brexit is, you know, I think still a, a point of uncertainty for you know, the, the future and what certain things are going to happen in the U.K., um, and I will tell you, one of the things that has helped ground me a little bit, maybe give me some perspective as I've gone through this uh, this year, I've thought a lot about C.S. Lewis. I've thought a lot about the Chronicles of Narnia, and I've C.S. Lewis saw a lot of upheaval mm. in a very short amount of time. Two world mm. wars. We don't. Well, now we think more about the 1918 pandemic. Um, we talk about that more now as uh, these days, but, uh, that happened as well. Um, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to ask you with all the things that C.S. Lewis saw, how do you think that his experiences fighting in, in one of the world wars and all that he saw in a very short amount of time, how do you think that that impacted him and, uh, how he, kind of just approached life? Uh, maybe that's a, it's a very broad question, but I've thought about it a lot, and I, I thought maybe you could provide some insight. Yeah, well, I've often re- thought to myself how 
obviously not just for Lewis, but for all the people of his generation who lived through both world wars. Uh, you know, what a, what a terrible time in history to live. Four years in the Great War, 14 to, 1914 to 18, nearly six years in the Second World War, 1939 to 45. So that's 10 years out of C.S. Lewis's life. And he, he didn't live much older than 60. You know, he was short of 65 when he died. So, mm -hmm. you know, roughly one year in every uh, 10. Is that right? I'm not very good at maths. <laughs> um, one year in every six yeah. um, was a, a year of his life spent, lived during a world war. Um, yeah, it's, it's probably not surprising that he um, thought so much about the problem of pain as he did and and wrote so seriously about you know life and death issues because they were confronting him in a in a way which you know they would not have confronted say the previous generation is his father's his grandfather's generation during the you know the 19th century was one of the most peaceful and prosperous periods in british history um and yeah he he, he got a bad deal but then <laughs> and and that's interesting because when we think about c.s lewis and uh, you know, a lot of people think of the movie Shadowlands or they think, oh, yes, I, I know his wife died. And they think about that in terms of his perspective on suffering. And, and certainly that was a, the, like his writing A Grief Observed was a big part of his writings on suffering. But he had already written a lot about it and I think thought a lot about it beforehand, mm. Mm. Uh, bef before that horrible experience. And because he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia before his wife died. That's right. Yes. It wasn't just the problem of pain that, you know, started him thinking about this topic. Of course not. Um, you know, his own mother had died when he was nine years old. And then he had had a terrible schooling experience in England, sent away from home within within about a fortnight of his mother's death. He was sent over the Irish Sea to England to be schooled at perhaps the very worst school in the entire British Isles. Um, where the headmaster flogged the boys mercilessly and was later certified insane and died in a lunatic asylum. Um, and then, of course, you know, the First World War comes and he's, he's a, a teenage officer in the British Army arriving in the trenches on his 19th birthday. And six months later, he's blown up, has an out-of-body experience as he very nearly dies. Um, so all of that, you know, all of that, his death of, the death of his mother, this horrible schooling experience and, and the First World War, all of that had happened before he was 20. So it's not surprising that, you know, he he gave a great deal of thought to questions of suffering and pain and, and despair and difficulty. But, you know, one, one of the early kind of responses he gave to it, even before he was a theist, let alone a Christian, was a very sort of logical response that, you know, why am I, why am I expecting this universe to be happy and good? Uh, you know, it doesn't make much sense to to rail against God for making such a d dark and bleak universe, because where have I got the idea of goodness and happiness from? If goodness and happiness aren't ultimate realities, then I shouldn't expect anything better. But if they are ultimate realities, um, then I've got to account for, for where they came from. And that's something I've even thought about a lot just in for our fam my personal family in the last year and a half is... Uh just thinking about what uh like there are certain things of course i wish were very very different uh, but to some extent i i can't be like how angry could i really be that things are like, in this world in this world uh how angry can i really be that that, that there is suffering um 
And I think sometimes we create these issues where we, we create these expectations for ourselves. Uh, well, I, I have this expectation life is supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be good. It's and good in a kind of superficial uh, sense of candy is good, not in a sense of, you know, mm. life being fulfilling. Mm. I kind of know the, I know the answer to this, I think, but I, I've, I have thought about could the Chronicles of Narnia have even been written, even say by the same man, but him not having gone through those experiences, being completely spared from all of that, uh, that difficulty, the mm. both sides, whether it's the, the bravery you saw with people in battle or the, the horrendous suffering as well. Uh, why or why not? Well, uh, he, he might possibly have, have tried to write such stories, but they obviously couldn't have been the same sorts of stories because, you know, every author speaks out of their own experience to a certain extent. And the nature of your experience will color the nature of your uh, imagination. So, you know, the, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe that we're celebrating today, we're, mm -hmm. we're speaking on the 70th birthday of the publication of the of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. You know, features, I thought you'd appreciate the timing. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's absolutely perfect timing. Um, at the heart of that story, we, we have a, a re-imagining of the, of the death and resurrection of Jesus in the sacrifice of Aslan on the stone table, uh, as witnessed by Susan and Lucy. Um, and there's this bit in, in that account, which has always struck me. I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. At any rate, that was how it felt to these two. Hours and hours seemed to go by in this dead calm, and they hardly noticed that they were getting colder and colder. Now, perhaps C.S. Lewis could have written that passage, regardless of, of what we know him to have gone through in his early life, but I doubt mm -hmm. it, because it there's, a, there's surely some experience of his own behind that. You know, he, he, he has known what it means, what, what it is to cry and cry and cry, um, or at least to want to, to cry and cry and cry. And therefore, he puts it into the story at a, at a, at a highly appropriate moment uh, after the, you know, the death of, of this magnificent and innocent lion um, who's the, who's the saviour of the Narnian world. Um, it's interesting that when he, you know, even before the book was published, proofs were sent to... Pauline Baines, the uh, the artist, who, the illustrator, who was going to do mm -hmm. the pictures for the book, and she apparently found the, the the account of Aslan's death and resurrection so moving that you know she it moved her to tears. And it was only after she finished the book and started drafting her own pictures that she suddenly realised, oh, I've I've read a story or I've heard a story along these lines somewhere else. <laughs> hmm. She suddenly saw the the gospel parallels; they broke over her like a wave. Um, but before, you know, before any such scriptural parallels had occurred to her, Lewis, Lewis's imagination had spoken to her, to her heart and to her imagination. And that, that's indeed a, a large part of Lewis's purpose, that he's, he's trying to get us to feel uh, the reality of the, of the gospel story, uh, as it were, disentangled from, you know, religious expectations or, or, or church inhibitions that, that's the purpose of the book, stealing past the watchful dragons, as he puts it. 
you know, some people, I think it's not a secret um, that um, we lost our son last year. Uh, the, li- the listeners in the, this podcast know that. And I've said, because eventually I wanted to come back to the podcast, uh, it took about a year off, but I told someone I, that I probably, if this podcast were about any number of other topics, um, I, I probably wouldn't see the point, but I can come back to the Chronicles of Narnia and C.S. Lewis's stuff over and over again, because it's funny, they're very short books. They're, mm. they're, they're not very long, but there's mm. so much there. And it's, I've even wondered sometimes, why do I keep coming back? And I, when uh, I started getting into books again after our son died, I started getting back into fantasy. Actually, the first book I read, I was able to motivate myself to read was The Lord of the Rings. I read The Lord of the Rings all the way through. And... Uh, the the only movies we were interested, my wife and I were interested in watching were fantasy movies, and mm. uh, I've wondered, is it fair to call the Chronicles of Narnia escapism? Because we quickly call fantasy, oh, it's an escape, and I don't, I, I think there's elements of truth to that, but I don't know if that's the right word because in many ways I think we're we're trying to do the opposite. Is mm. that the right word to use for books like these? No, I don't think it is. Well, let, let's let's use the distinction that Tolkien uses in his essay on fairy stories. Uh, he he says there that escape is one of the main functions of fairy stories. Uh, but we've got to be clear what we mean by escape. Um, why should a man be scorned? Tolkien says, if finding himself in prison, he tries to get out and go home. Or, if when he cannot do so, he thinks and talks about other topics than jailers and prison walls. We mustn't confuse the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter. So we've got to be clear what what it is that we're escaping from. And in in Tolkien's view, we're escaping from the, you know, in in fantasy and fairy story, where we're using our imaginations to, to think of higher things, to think of better things, to think of truer things. So one of the things that fairy tales and fantasies enable us to do is to recover a clear vision of of reality, whereas the so-called realistic novels, uh, which are just concerned with, you know, very often getting as much wealth and honor and pleasure and power, um, those kinds of stories, that that sort of egotistical castle building, as Lewis puts it in uh, an experiment in criticism, that looks ostensibly realistic, but spiritually speaking, it's far more escapist than anything you get in a good fairy tale. And I wonder, that's, I think, one of the things that C.S. Lewis figured out, because there is this, I don't know if I want to call it a balance, but there's an interesting, almost these opposing forces in successful fantasy. There's elements that are not the world we're living in. They're, they're, they're fantastical. They're, they're otherworldly experiences that we read and we know we'll never have. And yet the characters have to behave in a way that 
is relatable to the human experience. They have to, their emotions have to make sense within the context of that story. Mm. The friendships have to make sense within the context, their motivations and their, their fears and drives have to make sense within that context, even if the context is fantastical. And I think that where other fantasies sometimes fail, they, they can quickly come up with something otherworldly. Uh, mm. You know, people have imaginations, they can come up with something like that. But then the, you get lost in the people because y- you think, well, I would never do that. <laughs> or I can't see someone doing that. And of course, maybe the author's thinking, well, well, yeah, but you've never been in that situation. No, 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 no. But this person's not behaving in, in accordance mm. with human nature. Mm. Tolkien and Lewis saw what fantasy, what fairy tales were good for. Ostensibly, it's unrealistic in that, you know, giants and flying horses and, and witches and, and magic Turkish delight and all the rest of it, all, all those superficial elements of the, of the story don't exist in reality. But so what? The emotional feelings of the characters are realistic. Uh, the moral law which they have to obey is realistic. And and Lewis, like Tolkien, is there very much relying upon on you know their own forebears, writers like G.K. Chesterton and George MacDonald. Um, your your the listeners of of this podcast, if if they don't yet know Chesterton and MacDonald, should go should, should go and look at Chesterton's book Orthodoxy and its chapter on the ethics of Elfland, or they should look at George MacDonald's essay, uh, The Imagination, Its Function and Its Culture in his book, A Dish of Orts, because both MacDonald and Chesterton lay out in sort of theoretical terms what it is that Lewis and Tolkien then put into practice in their fiction. They say, you know, a a good healthy imagination um, and a good moral sense doesn't require any particular level of realism of presentation. Uh, What you need is realism of content. That is to say, the emotional, the spiritual, the moral, content within the story whatever the form of that story may turn out to be not realism representation but realism of content yeah that's lewis in an experiment in criticism i had never i had never heard that phrase before but i i think i'm as we say in the states i think i'm picking up what you're putting down (laughs) i was doing some searches on on amazon just looking at the, the rankings for uh, the Chronicles of Narnia books. And of course, in the books category, there's millions of books and it doesn't, it's not really a very helpful uh, ranking, but they, they have subcategories for all these different, and they put the Chronicles of Narnia into whether it's a box set or the line that went to the wardrobe. There's various subcategories they put it in and it is consistently, uh, if, like in the top 20 or at least 100 mm. of these different children's books subcategories right next to books that everyone has in their home, these Dr. Seuss books or The Very Hungry Caterpillar, mm. um, right next to all these other books that, that are uh, lengthwise much more accessible. Um, and you know, so people are more going to quickly buy them. But it's competing so well 70 years later. And mm. we're, we're recording this on October 16th. Um, and I also feel like I have to date this podcast so that if something cataclysmic happens <laughs> that we didn't mention, people wonder, oh, why didn't they mention it? Um, because it is 2020. Uh, wh- what is, I think you've already started to answer the question, but what is the staying power 
why is it that 70 years later, there's a podcast called Talking Beast where people are still discussing the Chronicles of Narnia and people still, they, they want to listen to it and they want to discuss? Yeah, well, it's partly that at the sheer level of readability, Lewis knows how to put a sentence together. He knows how to structure a story. But of course, you know, as we've already been saying, in addition to that literary imaginative skill, he had profound life experiences, um, but also a profound Christian faith, um, and indeed a highly trained philosophical mind. So you put all those things together, and you have a very potent cocktail. There are plenty of people who can write good stories, but they don't have good minds or good hearts. There are plenty of people who have good minds and good hearts, but can't write stories. Um, very few people I'd like have to all think those things I was in the latter. I, I hope I'm in the latter. I certainly can't write good stories. <laughs> so I can only hope that I have a good mind and good heart. <laughs> yeah, well, hope, yeah, those things are obviously far more important. But if, if you want to write a good fairy story that that lasts at least 70 years, and I'm sure that The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe will last indefinitely, really, um, as long as people can read the language, people will be wanting to read it. Uh, you know, it's an absolute classic piece of English fiction. So the Narnia stories are works of genius. I mean, I'm not saying they're all equally good. I think some of them are better than others. I think The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is, is probably the best. Uh, and it's interesting that that, that was the first one, and that was the one that Lewis said that he had to write or he would burst. Um, that sprang from a very deep part of him, I think. It was the book he was born to write. It, it has a lightness and a, an economy and inevitability about it. it. It feels like it's sort of fallen into Lewis's lap, ready-made almost. Um, whereas the later books obviously have had more calculation behind them. They're more mm -hmm. deliberate. They're more studied. Um, I think the, the the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is 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 an absolutely superb story, um, and the Horse and His Boy is also great. Probably the weakest is Prince Caspian, or maybe the Silver Chair. Um, and by by saying it's they're the weakest, I'm not saying they're bad books. I'm just saying they're they're less extraordinarily good <laughs> than the yeah. others. Yeah, we we actually uh, did an episode recently where we we went through and ranked the books, and it was we kind of admitted, look, we'll change these rankings as we <laughs> for ourselves as we see fit. But on the line, the witch in the wardrobe, even though it wasn't everyone's favorite book to read, uh, that everyone agreed, both of us agreed, it was it's so complete and there's something beautiful in its simplicity. I think is how my compadre Glumpuddle said it, um, mm. and I said, well, if you were to tell me. Uh, you're going to a desert island, you can take only one of the Narnia books. Well, the one mm. I would pick is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm. Yeah, well, if I was being sort of objective about it, I, I would uh, take The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe too, because I think it is objectively the best. But subjectively, my favorite is uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. You might like right. our uh, our episode ranking. You might have to listen to that one. <laughs> right. Yeah, but I think you know if you were cast away on a desert island, the voyage of the Dawn Treader would be the one to take in any case because it would give you hope that you might be rescued from your from your desert island. Yeah. You know, I've now been reading the books for well, I'm I've just turned fifty two, so I've been reading them for forty five years. Oh, you look good. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe longer. Um, <laughs> and I haven't got bored with them yet because. They've got so many layers to them, so many levels. Um, you know, we haven't even talked about my own particular take on Narnia with, with regard to the, 
the planetary symbolism and the and the spiritual symbolism of the seven heavens. So they are, you know, they're they're truly works of genius. I don't I don't think that's overstating it. But again, that's not to say they're all equally good. Uh, I, I, as I said, I think Prince Caspian is probably the least good. Um, and that and partly that's what part, partly that's because to to bring us back to some of our earlier discussion that um, the the moral crux of Prince Caspian is resolved too easily. There's not enough pain, to put it bluntly. <laughs> um, what I mean is that the crux of Prince Caspian is really, is Lucy going to follow Aslan when she sees him in the woods? Mm-hmm. That's the test point for Lucy. And she sees him in the woods and she allows herself to be overruled by her her sister and, and brothers and by Trumpkin. And they say, oh, we haven't seen Aslan. He, why doesn't he appear to us? And Lucy tries to persuade them to follow her and follow Aslan, but she can't. And so she follows them and it all goes wrong and they get to a dead end and then they have to trace their steps backwards. And and then Aslan shows himself a second time and says to Lucy, you've got to follow me, even if you have to do it alone. And Lucy says, well, of course, I, I suppose I wouldn't be alone not if I was with you. And that second time, she does manage to, to persuade the others to follow her. But the reason I'm, I'm talking about this in such detail is because in neither case is the, is the pressure sort of brought to a, a sufficient pitch of, of pain. Because the first time Lucy just fails, and the second time she just succeeds. It would have been a better strategy on Lewis's point narratively, dramatically speaking, if the first time Lucy saw Aslan, she followed him and maybe persuaded, say, Edmund to come with her, and the party had split. Aslan, Lucy and Edmund going off in one direction, Peter, Susan and Trumpkin going off in the other direction, that, then there would have been a split. Tension there would have been a heartbreaking, heartbreaking moment of yeah. division. Um, and of course, the reader would then be expecting, how is this division going to be healed? Where, how are they going to be brought back together? And that would have been dramatically effective because it would have kept you reading. How, how, you know, how is this problem going to be solved? As we, uh, as we start to uh, approach wrapping this up, I, I, I think back to just the interesting year we're in. I actually don't even know. Are you are you tutoring students in person again, or are you doing everything? How is Oxford University doing things right now? Well, the summer term, you know, from April, May, and June was just a wipeout. Not, nothing happened at all. We were in complete lockdown then. Um, things are just beginning to start again now. O- Oxford begins in mid October, so I actually took my first tutorial earlier today. Um, but I had to meet in my own house with the student rather than in my college because the, the, the college regulations won't, won't currently allow face-to-face meetings of that kind. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's all been massively disturbed. As I, as I've been thinking about our, just this past discussion and, uh, you know, even some of the people on our website have had, uh, job losses and, you know, things like that. I want to know, and I can't ask you to speak to C.S. what C.S. Lewis would say, but what kind of things do you think that he learned in his his life experiences that 
not to minimize 2020, but I were frankly much more cataclysmic in the first in those 30 years, like from like 1914 through 1944 or 45. Um, mm. What kind of things do you think he took away in terms of life lessons, for lack of a better term, that we should kind of be looking at? We, we kind of read the Chronicles of Narnia because I, I think we glean some of that. Uh, mm. And I think that's one reason why we're drawn to them. But what kind of things would uh, he be maybe taking away from from 2020? Yeah, well, I think probably the, the importance of the, of the virtue of courage. Courage is one of the cardinal virtues that he writes about in Mere Christianity. And, and he says somewhere, I think quoting Dr. Johnson or someone, that, that in a way courage is the chief of the virtues because none of the virtues are really driven to the testing point until they reach that point where courage needs to support them and, and a certain bravery needs to uh, you know, carry you through. You know, it's all right being honest, but if your honesty is tested to such a point where you might, you know, for instance, lose your job if you tell the truth about some corruption in your company or something. At that point, you have the, the testing point, you know, the, the moment of truth. And there your courage will come to the support of your honesty, uh, hopefully, or perhaps not. And then you'll be compromised and, and you'll just go along and you'll live the easy life. Um, so that's one of the reasons why Lewis rates valor, courage, bravery as, as in, in a way, the, the cent central virtue, at, le at least of the, of the cardinal virtues. Of course, you know, love, charity is, is the ultimate virtue. Um, but yeah, when we're, we're faced with all these difficulties that 2020 is throwing up, um, we can easily be cowed, browbeaten, and driven into depression and or we can stand up and assert uh, a courageous attitude in the face of these difficulties which doesn't make the difficulties go away um, but it just enables us to get through to the other side as it were it's like winston churchill said when you when you're going through hell keep going <laughs> and that is my favorite definition of courage because i i think Reflexively, a lot of us would say, well, what's the definition of courage? Well, it's facing your fears. But then you run into issues if you really take that to its logical conclusion, because you think, well, some fears are rational, some things we mm. should be afraid of, or maybe should stay away from. And yeah. people have different knee-jerk reactions to certain things with lockdowns or restrictions or, or masks and different all these different things people are trying to navigate uh, through all this. But I, I love that definition first of all, because it's true. But secondly, mm. the way it's articulated, it does ex give us kind of a path forward. It's all these virtues, you know, compassion, honesty, wisdom at the testing point. Mm. And it's just a beautiful encapsulation of, of the necessity of ongoing courage. If you're going through hell, keep going. You know, it doesn't mean that the hell will go away, but it does mean that you will not be overcome by the hell. Uh, and that, that's, I think, the, the essence of the point, which again is you know, beautifully depicted in, in any number of the Narnia books, perhaps, perhaps most famously in, in Puddleglum's response uh, in The Silver Chair, when he stamps on the fire in the face of the witch's temptations to 
to you know buckle down and and pretend that the uh, the underworld is the only world uh trump uh, puddle glum says no i can remember the sun up in the sky and and in order to bring that home to himself he does the bravest thing imaginable he, he stamps with his with his webbed foot on a burning fire and and you get the the smell of burnt marsh wiggle pervading the space <laughs> um but it's what was necessary. It's what it's what enabled him to keep going when he was going through hell. He was going through lit, literally the underworld in that story. Mm-hmm. Well, Doctor Ward, thank you very much for your time. I uh, I've personally benefited from it. I found it encouraging, uh, and I needed a little bit of encouragement. I do a lot these days uh, for many, various reasons, but I appreciate your friendship and I appreciate your scholarship as well, sir. Thank you. Uh, brilliant. Thank you, Isaac. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And God bless you, my friend. Yes, Godspeed uh, Narnia Web and this podcast in particular. Thank you for listening in on our conversation with Dr. Michael Ward. If you'd like to learn more about him, you can go to his website, michaelward.net, and you can check out his book, Planet Narnia. You've been listening to Talking Beasts, the Narnia podcast from narniaweb.com. We post new episodes on the 7th and 17th of every month, so be sure to subscribe to this podcast and give us five stars on iTunes. Post a comment below or in the Talking Beast Facebook group. Visit patreon.com slash to support this podcast and get exclusive content, including more episodes. You can find me on Twitter at Prince underscore Rillian. You can email us at podcast at narniaweb.com, glumpuddle at narniaweb.com, or rillian at narniaweb.com. Thanks for listening and further up and further in. Mm-hmm.